Okay, we uh, continue on with our Hebrews 11. And of course, when we we think of Hebrews 11, we have to think of faith. And uh, the text that we're dealing with today is definitely going to do that because that's what each verse is about. But I do want to tell you, this text that has two verses in it, has a lot of doctrine to it. it has, there's faith. There is deliverance. There's salvation. There's God's judgment, His wrath, uh, His grace, His mercy, His power, and His glory. All of that's on display in this text that we're dealing with today. I mean, this is really amazing just to see in a, a few short words to get all this kind of great doctrine. Uh, in this packed text. So we're thankful for uh, God's Word always as it just jumps off the page and uh, God speaks to us, right? Isn't He speaking to us here? Through His Word. Uh, What we have done now, we have come to the walls of Jericho and we've had a journey and it's been a journey of illustrations of people showing that they had remarkable faith. Uh, illustrations such as we worship by faith uh, as Abel did. We walk by faith as Enoch did. We work by faith as Noah did. We live day by day uh, faith for a long time as Abraham did. And we die by faith as Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did. And now we also have looked at Moses. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he made right choices by faith as as it said that uh, he chose rather to suffer the reproach of Christ with his people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin that he had as one of the elite in uh, Egypt. Uh, This was Moses. He had the choice of living high on the hog, I guess you could say, and instead he chose the reproach of Christ. Historically, this uh, story that we have here is true. It's the walls of Jericho. Of course, the liberal people would uh, like to say that that is ridiculous. Those walls couldn't have come down like that. Uh, But Moses, we know, had been leading the people. Now he's taken them to the actually what is the promised land. Moses dies. He doesn't get to lead them into the promised land. That is where um, another one comes in. And that's kind of who and what we're dealing with today. Um, Our text today really, it's highlighting really the uh, conquering kind of faith that we have. We have a victorious conquering faith. And this faith is an incredible because all true believers really possess courage. And you have to wonder sometimes, am I really courageous? Well, if you are a Christian, you've made some courageous choices uh, throughout your Christian life. You have been courageous and you have been victorious because the Word of God says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. We over exceedingly go abundantly over being conquerors because we have the conqueror, don't we? Christ is the conqueror. He is the victor. He is the champion. He's the champion victor. And the victorious side always wins in this case. We are undefeated in Christ in the sense that He is our conqueror. He gets all the glory. What we are to do is just believe 
what He says, His promise. And He gave a promise to Abraham. That promise has extended on through His sons and grandsons and now has reached out all the way to the point of uh, this time when they're going into the promised land. But it's still not going to be the end of the promise as uh, they look to that. Now, this is called uh, the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith people seem to be uh, heroes but you know what? They are just like us. They are men and women. And they are people who just have to trust in God. It's really not their actions that they get credited. They just believe and trust. Their actions that they did, but really it was God working in them, God working His plan. And you remember, God tells the people through Moses to just go back, Stand and see the glory of God, right? Just stand, watch what He's going to do. Believe Him. So this is what faith is, it's trust. Uh, We don't see, we don't see these kind of things, do we? But we trust in Him. We're confident that God will do what He says. Now, the children of Israel were people that had been delivered out of Egypt And now, up to this point, it's been 40 years, and really it's been 40 years of unbelief. Because Hebrews 4, 3 and 4 actually tells us about their unbelief that they had in the wilderness. 40 years of that. Even despite what God had done. And it's interesting. I think it's really ironic that as they come to the promised land, there is a woman there who is a Gentile, And she is one who has shown her faith as we look at this story today. A Gentile woman is a prime example of what faith is as soon as they reach the promised land. Isn't that incredible? So, um, pick up the Bibles and uh, we turn to uh, chapter 11 and it's at uh, verse 30. And we read this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in. Father, thank You. Thank You for this faith that conquers, this faith that saves. We see it through these examples. The walls of Jericho falling down the people doing what they were told to do, and also this lady Rahab who trusts in You and what Your Word has been said. And Lord, may we learn from this real story and really see the type that is behind it all as it points to Jesus Christ, the Deliverer who takes us out of the bondage and makes us conquerors. In Jesus' name, Amen. So chapter 11, verse 30, by faith, sounds familiar, like every section starts with that, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. Now Jericho is the first obstacle in the promised land. They're going to have many more obstacles, aren't they? This is the first one that they encounter and because they have to conquer Canaan. The land of Canaan has been promised, but they are to conquer this land and destroy the enemies there. God promised this to who? Abraham. 
if you remember the Abrahamic promise where they were going. So when they came to Jericho, what did they see? They saw a, a trem- tremendous city. It had a wall around it. It actually had two walls. There was an outer wall that was six foot thick and then an inner wall that was 12 foot thick. And I would say of all the places in the world at that time, this had to be maybe the most impenetrable fortress of them all. Uh, It definitely had the walls, didn't it? God picks this city for them to have to conquer to go into the promised land. That's just like God, isn't it? He gives us formidable enemies, and the enemy is conquered by faith. And that's our first one. We look at two at today. One on verse 30 and one on verse 31. Broken up pretty easy for us, isn't it? Uh, Conquered by faith are our enemies. Uh, So you have this um, uh, situation where Joshua, who is the captain now, he's taking over in place of Moses. He's there near Jericho. He's looking at this situation. He's pondering. He's thinking, you know, how's this going to happen? How are we going to take this we have to first go through Jericho. This is a tremendous city, tremendous walls. Uh, what do you, what do you what do you do? You know. So the Lord appears to Joshua, actually appears to him, actually talks to him audibly. I think that's quite a thought right there. So he appears to him in human form, and we're going to call this really a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, so um, I think that's that's an awesome thing, a theophany or Christophany. Uh, the captain of the Lord's army, and he reveals to him the way it's going to go down as he tells him. He says, this is what's going to happen. So let's turn first to Joshua chapter 5. We're really going to be in Joshua 6 today and then Joshua 2. That's our order. It sounds like it's out of order, but... Uh, that's what we have in our Hebrews 11, and it's not out of order in that sense, but chronologically, I guess you could say. But in our uh, Joshua 5, just before chapter 6, here, here's the setting. Here's, uh, here's Joshua, and uh, we are starting at verse 13. Joshua 5.13 Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes, looked, behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. He's not just a man. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord, as the host of Yahweh. Joshua fell on his face to the earth, bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to His servant? recognizes right away, this is something different. This is, this is not a... a a human being in, in this sense. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like the time with Moses whenever we remember the burning bush. God is speaking there. Of course, there's a, an appearance in that sense. So Joshua did so. Yeah, shoot, boom, the sandals go off. This is holy ground right here. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out. No one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. The amazing army that they have, I'm giving it to you. This is, this is all yours. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do that for six days. 
Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. There on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast on the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua gets the message. This is not just a little kid's story, is it? It's great for kids to read and study. They see the power of God. They, they see the sovereignty of God here. But it's something that we take more than just a little story. It's true this happened. So as we look at that, we see how Joseph follow, or Joshua follows up with this as he gives uh, the commands that he was given of how they're supposed to do it. Uh, we won't read all of that, but you know we're dealing with the priest and the, the trumpets, the ark. Uh, you have the, um, of course, the army. You have the people. Uh, the, you have trumpets that they're to carry. They do that six days. Uh, then pick it up, verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Seven in the Bible means what? Usually completion, a perfection, right? So uh, there, that means this is over, this is done. <laughs> We're ready. At the seventh time, when the priest blew his trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! My, my version has an exclamation point. For the Lord, or that's Yahweh, has given you the city. That city shall be under the ban and it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. She's introduced in chapter 2. We'll pick up that later. We're looking at this from the backward side. We're looking at the victory first. Um, but as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them. Take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. This had to be pretty loud, wouldn't you think? This would be crazy. The shouting of two million people. Have you ever been in a ballpark? Uh, at, at Bush Stadium with 40,000 people there, and you know somebody hits a home run. I mean, it's pretty loud when that happens. 40,000 people. Okay, now 2 million people possibly. They shout, the priests are blowing the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Look at this. Every man straight ahead, they took the city. This is devastation here. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman. This is what God told them to do. This is hard for people to understand, especially the liberal. They can't believe a God would command people to be destroyed like this, even little children. I know, that's tough for the human mind to fathom. That's what had to happen. It had to be cleaned out. We see what happens later when they don't clean out everything. Young and old, and ox, and sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. That's rather humbling, isn't it? Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house, bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. 
people are going to say. So the young, uh, young men who were spies went in, brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver, gold, articles, bronze, and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Exactly as it was said. They did what God said. They believed it and then they did it when it was time to do it. Quite an obstacle. It's been done. The walls of the city, they crumble. Israelite soldiers go in, march straight into the city, they take it, they burn it. You know what? Salvation or deliverance means there is conflict with enemies, with powerful enemies. They had trained warriors. A great king. great city Jericho was. They've uncovered Jericho. The original walls. You know, over the course of time, you have tells built. Time goes on. People build over cities. That's what happens all over the Israel and thereabouts. So, as archaeologists go into these places, they tediously take spoonfuls of dirt just to not break things like pottery and such. But now you, you, there are. We see the walls today. Look it up. Pretty fantastic, isn't it? All this has happened in our time and discovering many of the ancient cities where people used to laugh at the thing that uh, yeah, believers say that there was a, the walls fell down. Well, there were certain areas like you know towers and whatever that were built up there later. Yeah, the walls crumbled, but those, those rocks and huge stones, one on another and such. So there we go. Um, Israel and Pharaoh's army, you remember? They're at the Red Sea. What an enemy. And you remember, there they are. They're, they're backed up against the Red Sea and the army. What do they do? That's exactly where God wanted them. Powerful enemy. Why does He do that? show His power. To show our weakness. We need to be convinced how weak we really are. It's not our problem that we believe that we're weak. We don't believe that. We think we can do things on our own. The thing is, He's constantly showing us enemies and conflicts to show us that we are totally dependent upon Him in every avenue. So He brings us into conflict as soon as we become Christians. Did that happen to you? Did you start seeing some enemies come up against you? may not have recognized what was going on, but immediately there are tests that you have. Here's the thing. There are many fortified cities in our minds. We have put up fortresses here in our minds, in our hearts. They're entrenched in our hearts, these strongholds, these fortresses. And not only do we face the enemies within, we have enemies that are outside us, and that would be like family members that might have challenged our faith. And when you become a Christian, you become different. And some people don't understand that. It makes them very upset. It can be bosses at work. Or it can be former friends, you know, because all of a sudden you've changed. And they say, you've changed. You know, I don't like you the way you are. Did that happen to any of you guys? Probably uh, some of you did. So, 
enemies happen and of course our own ideas, our own opinions and things that we build up on our own minds and our thinking start crumbling down, don't they? If you're a member in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it is, uh, a great text dealing with those fortresses that we are to blow away. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Not only on the outside of us and all the opinions and ideals and the psychology and everything that the world has as far as it's offering, but we want to destroy those speculations also right in our own minds, our own thinking. For we are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're leading them right in our triumphant parade as we take down those strongholds that are in our mind. Now that not only happens at salvation, but it happens all the rest of your life till Christ comes back. There are different thoughts that you had before that now all of a sudden are challenged by God's Word and who God is and what He's all about. And those foolish speculations get destroyed by His Word, don't they? And verse 6 says, "...and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete." Are you ready to punish disobedience in your own hearts? Are you ready to punish disobedience out in the world? Right, we, we we are victors. We are champions only in Christ. So, marching the army around. God has unusual ways of doing things. We, we've noted that constantly, haven't we? Uh, you have a walled city. You have seven days here. You have marching uh, once around it each day for the six days. You have the blowing the trumpets. It's just not a sensible plan, is it? I mean, this, you know, it doesn't make it sense. How are we going to get victory out of marching around the city? You know, I'm sure they're asking these things, and, and I'm sure some, some of them were thinking, man, this is really silly. This doesn't make any sense. If Joshua had held meetings with some of the leaders, his top commanders, do you think anybody was suggested this plan? I don't think anybody would have. No, matter of fact, I know nobody would have come up with this plan. They would have laughed them out of the meeting. They, one, by, one commander would probably say, okay, we've got to put a siege upon them. And what we're going to do is that we're going to have these siege ramps, and then we're going to have these battering rams, and then we're going to shoot fiery arrows at the ones who are on the wall, and we're going to destroy this fortress like this. Or others say, here's how we do it. We just be patient and we choke them. We besiege the city. We don't let anybody out and they starve to death and they thirst to death. Right? So that's what uh, some would do. And this is up on a high hill, this particular place is too. A high, high area Jericho was. It would be hard to get to and then when you get there, then you have these fortresses. What chance does an army have? That's why they did what they did there. Why does God choose a strange approach like this? Marching around the city with trumpets and then yelling and, and such at the end of the seven days. Uh, victory. 
over powerful enemies in ways that we cannot imagine. We don't trust in ourselves, do we? And that's what He wants to get across. We have victory over powerful enemies because of our commander-in-chief of this universe. So, we can't conquer in this powerful city without God's strength. He's going to have to do it again. He did it at the Red Sea. Okay. He's saying, you're going to have to trust in My power. That's where He wants us. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Not your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Boy, that is humbling, isn't it? God just doesn't do it our way. Gideon, that whole deal with there, I mean, they had pretty uh, massive amount of soldiers and he got got it all the way down to 300 men. Actually, God didn't even need the 300 men. Didn't even need three men for that matter. But, you know, the, the torches, the trumpets, shouting or whatever God uses, it's like, wow. Gideon and his people were victorious, weren't they? Uh, look in Second Chronicles chapter twenty. I think it's verse twelve. Does this give you great hope when you look at this? It's not on us, is it? Twenty verse twelve, Second Chronicles. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's Jehoshaphat. He saw that they could be defeated tremendously. All he can do is go to God. He has nowhere else to go, does he? Who wins? You guys know the end of the story, right? Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse ten. We've been there pretty recently, haven't we? We had 2 Corinthians 10 earlier, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Very familiar. Verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm content with where I'm at, it looks like impossible odds. God is strong. He's going to do however He wants to do it. Do it, Lord. I believe You. Right? So, it's a matter of realizing our weakness. God's plan for victory humbles us, doesn't it? It means we don't trust in ourselves. It's not our ability. Faith acknowledges our inability. When you have faith, it's saying, I can't do it. But it also says on the other side, and I know someone who can. Faith realizes God's total ability. We just read that Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 12. You know what faith does? It humbles our pride. Starts breaking down pride. Exalts God's glory. It not only believes, it obeys also. 
Look in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter uh, one, verse twenty-nine and thirty. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter one, twenty-nine, thirty. Then I said to you, do not be shot nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight on your behalf just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So, you know, here's what He does. He goes before them. You know what He's telling them to do? Trust. They're still going to have to do what is before them. You know, here in this case, walk around the city go into the city, take it, but God has given them the victory. So there's, But there's still this obedience. Uh, somebody could say, man, Joshua, this is a really a interesting plan you have here. But uh, you know what? Uh, we need to really do a more sensible approach here. This, uh, this is crazy. Probably, there, there have been hours now as, as they go through that, those seven days, six days, some of them could be thinking, we don't read that in here, but I'm sure some of them said, man, this is kind of dumb. I, this, you know, what's going on? But they obey. The, you know, God has told them what to do and they do it. Doesn't make sense, but they do it. Is that obedience? That's obedience. That's what faith uh, is. It, it obeys. Um, to obey means we have to know what His Word says then. God had appeared visibly to Joshua and audibly he heard from God I really would love that to happen for me how about you guys wouldn't you love that God would just appear before you in some way and tell you exactly what to do in every decision in your life wouldn't you like that I sure would I have to be honest with you I, I would I would take that in a moment he did for Joshua and he did for a lot of these Old Testament characters but that's not the norm of everyday faith. I would like to tell you that, and that's what it is, but that's not usually the way it works because faith is without seeing. But in certain times, it was time necessary for one to be able to do this. And it happened with Moses, it happens here with Joshua. They need some kind of directions. Now, what are we going to do? We're here, and he was looking at it. He knew that they had to do something, and then God show, uh, shows him how they are to do it. Uh, so, uh, God in these last days has spoken to His Son. Hebrews 1-2. That's, he's spoken through His Son. Okay. We see that the very uh, sum of what God is about is found in His Word, in the Bible. If we look at Christ, we see the very sum of what He desires is right here. It's all been revealed now. The Old Testament people didn't have all revelation. There was still the New Testament to come. We look back in time and realize everything that God has needed to say to His people has been said. He gives us encouragement some way, you know, he can go through a lot of different ways too. He can speak not only through his word, but he speaks through other people in the sense they can, you know, circumstances can come up and, you know, our situations, our problems. Sometimes he just gives us a peace we know 
as we peer into it. This is really where we get him telling us, though. It's based right upon this. Isn't it great to know that we, we sit here, every one of us have Bibles and we can understand. Many of us have study Bibles. And, uh, like Bradley has. He's study Bible now. He has, these are notes down here and they can explain to you what that is. They're not inspired, but they're like what a teacher or a preacher would do. And you can say, oh, that's, that's what I was wondering. Is that what that means? So it's helpful, isn't it? Have those kind of aids. That's what we have today. Thank the Lord. Um, so we can't obey his word or obey him without having his what his word, um, and that follows with obedience. And he he takes this group that Moses had taken to come out of Egypt. Of course, then you have the Red Sea with the cross, right? Takes the same group of people. Well, actually, most of those people died out after the forty years. So here you have sons and daughters, and but it's still the nation of Israel. And they've been out in a barren wilderness. And it seems like a formula for a major disaster to take this amount of people into a wilderness with no food or water. You ever thought about that? That is a... That's unbelievable. What leader would ever take his army out into a wilderness that has nothing there? No supplies. Uh, that's a formula for absolute disaster in a few short days. But a Moses obeyed. The people obeyed. They did it. And remember, God's Word takes down the strongholds. And so it goes. It goes with us. Now it's waiting for God's timing. Forty years come and gone. Now he... They marched, and when it times the time has come now for the people to shout, they're going to shout expectantly because something is supposed to happen. The walls are supposed to come down, and so they're waiting for God's timing. Impenetrable walls here are going to crumble. So the destruction of Jericho is a picture of judgment. And that's what we look at as we close out this thirtieth verse here. It's really about judgment on unbelievers. At the same time, people who are believers are actually given victory. But you look, this is real, it's historical, but it's also typical. It, it's a type here of God's judgment. And the story of Rahab and Jericho is a picture. It's a picture of condemnation. Remember that verse one, or that one verse that I said that was uh, hard for people to swallow when men, women, and children, all that were in the city, were destroyed. Hard to fathom, I know, and that's not the way that God operates today. But at that time, that's what He did. He has the right to do that. Matter of fact. Really, He has the right to destroy every man, woman, child that's ever been born and do away with them all. Right? And this is including us. This is what this type is. He condemned all men and women and the animals. This is the world. Jericho is the world. That's what the world is like, isn't it? It's a Jericho. Unbelievers. We're part of a condemned world. Now, we are set apart. We are called holy. We are called saints. We're set apart from the world, right? But, we know this world is condemned. 
this nation is being judged now, will be judged. That time will come to the ultimate. All of sin, right? Come short of the glory of God. God is just. There is a time that He said that would come that the Amorites' time would come to a close. Look back in Genesis 15. This was part of the covenant covenant of God that was made to Abraham as he was put to divine sleep with the divine anesthetic. And here's what God says, and He's mentioning the, the, the 400 years. He says, okay, Abraham, here's the promise. But it's going, it's going to extend actually 400 years here beyond that a little bit. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here back to this promised land because they were deported to Egypt, really. That's what it came down to. Taken out of Egypt and then after being there for hundreds of years. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Who's the Amorite? Really, the Amorite is in its general for the Canaanites of that land. When they come to Jericho, who are these Jerichoites? They're, call them Canaanites, call them what? Amorites. There are more Amorites to be done, but he says, this is what God has already planned to do. He tells Abraham this, that they'll return back to the promised land because the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That means they're going to continue to sin and sin and sin. And then God holds them accountable to His judgment of sin. Right? So, then it was going to be complete. And He's going to use His nation of Israel to do that. Is God just? That's one of the great attributes that we have to learn. God is a just God. He's holy. He has every right to destroy anyone that He wants because of their sin, their iniquity. How evil they are. That's the idea. A total destruction. Joshua 6. Remember we had read that. Just to touch base, I think in verse 24... Yeah, they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. After the walls came down, they burned the city and everything that was in it, just as God had said. Everything, except for the gold and the silver and such. They used that for their temple. Do you know what? This is a type of God's judgment that He has done, that He is doing today, and that He will ultimately do in the future when all the nations, all the kings are destroyed. Just like Jericho. All the walls are going to fall down. Kingdoms of the world will go through the ages. They're judged. We've seen that. We've seen historically how they were judged. It's the consummation of judgment, and we know that in Second Peter chapter three, seven through eleven, it talks about there will be new heavens and new earth, for everything in the old heavens and earth will be burned up. And he will create new heavens and new earth. All sin is gone. Nothing left to taint it once at that time. So that's part one, that's verse thirty. 
Let's go to verse 31. Would you say that that was a good picture of God being just and bringing on judgment? Jericho. Jericho means judgment. But Jericho also means that there is deliverance. There is victory. Is this the power of God that's on display? Is this the justice and wrath of God on display? You betcha. Is this the just the sovereignty of God being put on display? Yes, it is. At the same time, it's the grace, the mercy, the love of God that's being displayed as He destroys this sinful, evil, wicked... I can't put it across. It's paneros. In the, in the Greek, that is evil. That's evil to the point... No believer is paneros anymore. We were, we were in that state. We are not evil. We might do bad things, but we are not evil, wicked. That means they will be destroyed. Wow. Here's where the mercy of God comes in in an incredible way. God saves hopeless sinners by faith. We move to Jericho. We saw a picture of judgment. Now we see a picture of salvation. I think we see a very well-rounded picture. Do you see the attributes of God working all over the place here? This is a beautiful thing, what God is doing. This is God's way of pardon, as He puts forth here. So, we go to Joshua 2. Let's pick up on that. Verse 1 says that the spies are sent out. And they actually, verse 1 at the end of it says, they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. God sure does things in really different ways, doesn't He? He came to the house of the harlot, Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men, hidden them. She said, Yes, The men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. It came about this, it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to like Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, There it is. They are pursued. Um, They are hiding. Rahab has protected them. Uh, She has lied. Yeah, she did. I'm not saying lying is what we're supposed to do in this situation. But uh, that's really not the essence of the story. So it really doesn't elaborate that. But there are commands uh, as these men... These spies, they they talked to Rahab, pick it up in 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. So she let them out, and that's where they take off and 
go hide. She said to them, Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. Hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear unless when we come in the land. Here's what you need to do. You tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be free of that. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. A lot of types going on here. Rahab really is an unlikely candidate for deliverance. Rahab. Uh, If you're Jewish, three strikes, you're out. One strike, she's a woman. Two strikes, she's a Gentile at that. Strike three is she is a prostitute, a harlot. Besides, I think, uh, was it uh, Sarah? Of course, you think of uh, Ruth. Actually, in Hebrews 11, it's it's really Sarah and Rahab who are the two women that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Now, then it mentions later on women as a plurality. I'm not reducing the fact that women are less than, than men in this at all. I'm just saying this is the privileged position that she is given by the time that we close up here today. We're going to get into that special type too. She's really an unlikely prospect though. I mean, really... God, she is a pagan and she's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's a harlot. God, don't you know who you're dealing with here? Um, well, she's she's a child of Adam. She's a sinner. She's a sinner like everybody else is. Joshua 2, verse 11. What was that? Let's go back to that for a moment. Uh, 2.11 says what? Now, we didn't read that verse, but it says, when we heard it, our hearts melted. She's speaking for the people. When we heard all the victory that you've had, the Red Sea thing, and and then the conquering of uh, the kings of the Amorites, Og and Sihon, our hearts melted. And no courage remained. And any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. That's what she says. By the way, she calls Him Yahweh, your God. The specific God, uh, the Creator, the one and only God. And she says that. I knew that. The people, we all knew. We didn't have a chance against you. If you came out of Egypt, that's a nation... They're coming to a mighty city, but this city doesn't compare to Egypt, does it? But it's a walled city. Still thinking these people are very prideful, but they realize that they have to be shaking in their sandals or something as they see this, this enemy of Israel coming there. 
whatever it was, this impending attack, you know, they're looking for that. Their fear that they have doesn't even lead them to repentance. That's what counts when one has faith. There has to be a repentance. A sorrow for their sin and then truly repenting from that. But that's what she did. She repented. She recognized that they were doomed and she was willing to follow the one true God she wanted to be on His side. She didn't understand much theology. Boy, did she ever get it right when she said here in 11, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. One of these days, everybody will say that. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that what? Jesus is Lord. She said it right here. I would much rather say that now than say it later, right? Was it remember that one? Pay me now or pay me later? She believed. Is this faith? Oh man, this is saving kind of faith. The past life of sin that she had in her harlotry did not disqualify her from salvation. You can say, well, that's just about one of the worst situations anybody could be. A harlot? They're the worst kind. And then you see Jesus come on the scene. And isn't it interesting that He would talk to harlots? They became saved? Isn't that fascinating? God delights to take notorious sinners and change them, change their hearts, save them all for His glory. That's what this picture is about. God just works so differently than the way we would think. Basically, we'd think, well, He's going to save the good people. And we know better, for we know that all of sin falling short of the glory of God. We know all that are dead in their sins and trespasses. But the thing is, people who do not believe in Him refuse to submit to Him. They will not believe. And so, what she had to do was separate from her own people. That sounds easier than what it really is to do. It means separating from this whole culture that I've been involved with. My way of life, my job, everything that I have done. Rahab had to break away from her people, her culture, her source of income, all of it. Abandon it and follow this group of people, their faith that they had. And it's her faith. Hebrews 11.31 it says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. They were not basically good people, were they? Nobody is. They had heard of God's power. They believed those stories that they had heard, but they didn't submit to Him. But she makes the break. She tells, she even pleads for her family, mother, father, relatives. God grants deliverance there. The enemies, which would be Israel, of of, uh, the people in Jericho, 
are circling around the city now. They're doing it every day. Six days. This looks really weird. <laughs> Sitting on top of the wall, if you're looking down, you're going, these guys, they circle us and then they leave. They circle us and then they go back again. They, and I'm sure some of them are jeering the Israelites as they do that. You know, this is just crazy. You know, they're carrying their seven trumpets. Now, in Joshua 2.13, I mentioned about this scarlet cord or this inner window. Of course, there was a rope that let them down, but there's going to be this scarlet cord that's let down. It's scarlet. It's not brown. It's not gray. It's not green. It doesn't kind of blend in. Um, ah, good. There's somebody in here with red. Boom. I can see red real quickly. I look at Janice. She has red on. Now, you know what? You can spot red quicker than anything. If you'll notice, some of the great products are great in the eyes of people. You know, If they're driving down Missouri Boulevard, you're going to spot a red sign real quick. Coca-Cola, what do they have? Red. Man, when you see that red, you know. I mean, you can't miss it. It's just something that jumps out at you. Well, this is what she's going to have hanging down where the spies, the nation of Israel, can see it. It's made very evident. She doesn't hide it. She puts it there forth for all to see. By the way, I like the, this color, color of scarlet that's mentioned. It kind of reminds me of being kind of covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? I think there's a little typology there, if we can say that. All along through here, I think everything's pointing to Christ anyway, ultimately. But this, this is a real story. But it's not a blue thread. It's not a brown thread, a green thread. It's a red, it's a scarlet thread. And she shows her faith by her works. Look in James 2.25. When you think of faith and works, that's one of the chapters you have to go to in favor of works. It's not working for salvation, but it definitely shows her salvation. And that's what James is writing about. He's not in conflict with Paul as far as grace is concerned. So we look in James 2.25 and look at this. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Now, Reformed faith says you're justified by faith. And, and, and grace. And here we have the works and now we're in trouble. Because whenever the works salvationist people see this, they say, see, uh-huh, you have to do things before you become saved. And the thing is, what James goes through, and if you look at it and look everything in context, it's there is faith alone. But faith is accompanied by works because when you are saved then what happens the works happen you're never saved by that but you the justification here is saying see you you're showing your justification the righteousness that's credited to your account by the works you now do and so he James is building an argument in Romans or James chapter 2 and he says, see, Rahab the harlot was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She protected them. This is what should be the enemy. And she has them in and protects them. 
For just as a body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So faith alone is what you're saved, but it doesn't appear alone, does it, as works are with it. And by the way, we are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. His work on the cross. But she shows that she's for real here. Um, One can ask this. You know what? I don't understand this. Why did they go to a harlot's house? Now, why would they do that? Well, as put forth um, by a commentator, and I think most would probably say this, um, really, you know, when you think of prostitution, anybody is welcome there. You know, they don't really you know, put out um, little feelers for them. Oh, we can't have this guy. You know, it's just all are kind of welcome. It's a place to kind of be able to stay, to, to, to hide out, to hang out. Now, they're not there for the, the, the prostitution uh, of her, but they are there as they are being hidden, as they have been the spies, and she provides a way for them to be hidden and then tells them what to do, where to go, and how long to stay there and in hiding, and then to get out. And she is going to be one that God is going to deliver out of this city. It's You can see, okay, they're using what would maybe be just what makes sense to them, Right. Okay. This is a, this is a place we're gonna we can actually get into a house and and you know this would be cool. You know, we can hide out at least and lodge here for the the moment. Uh, but God's providence also is really apparent here, isn't it? And He used it because there were people there that He was going to save. There was a woman that He was going to grant faith and save her because she has an important role to play in the Messiah. And this is really getting to the point that we're closing here. And I know you guys know this. There's a genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew 1 is a genealogy that proves that Jesus is King. goes through the kingly line. The... Davidic line. David being that great king. And in Matthew 1, 5, and 6, it says this. Oh, you have names here, really. Verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. This is her. This is the prostitute who became a believer. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Rahab has Ruth. Boaz, or, or there's Boaz, but you can see how she's related to Ruth in that sense. You can think of a daughter-in-law, right? But Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse... Jesse was the father of David the king. There's the Davidic line. And you go on through. There you have David. And that's where it's all pointing to. You get to the end of this verse 17 and you see the the Messiah. The generations 
It's all listed. She, a Gentile, a woman, a former prostitute, is found in the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is mercy. That is grace. She is found in Hebrews 11 with the faith that she had. Incredible. Rahab married a Jewish man. His name is Solomon. They have a son, Boaz. He marries Ruth, who is another Gentile woman. Obed is the father of Jesse. Everybody knows Jesse. He's the father of David. There's your kingly line. So Rahab the harlot is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. An ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a thousand years later. What a great testimony of God's abundant grace. This is what we close on here. Can you see mercy? Can you see grace? Can you see love here? You see how He delivered that woman? By the way, she pleads for her whole family to be delivered. And I tend to think that they all became believers too. Prostitution is not glamorous. It's ugly. They're never respected. God takes the worst of sinners and reclaims their lives. What an amazing thing. God saves by His grace through faith. Faith becomes fruitful. From futility that she was in to fruitfulness. So I want to tell you, Jericho is a picture of the evil world God judges. And either by faith you're on His side, with some Jericho in our lives that need to be conquered, but we're on His side. We always win because He's the winner. Or you're comfortably living in Jericho. If you're a Christian, you're not comfortable in Jericho. You're never comfortable if you're a Christian. So that's one question. If you're comfortable here in the world, then I think one would need to be examining who they really are. Because if one is comfortable in this world, they're headed for what? Destruction. Think of Pilgrim's Progress all that He gave up as He was to go the way of the cross. If you're in God's camp, you have faith in His mighty power that He will give you victory. And you'll have intimidating enemies all throughout your Christian life that will threaten to destroy you. But you know what? This thing called faith is an amazing thing. And it didn't come from my own little working it up. It came because God has given something very precious and I'm just to believe His promises, to trust in what He says, and then to trust in what He does, and then do what He tells me to do. All the way, all the way through, this is another picture of faith that we have been given. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Now grant us, as we go out of here today, that we go believing You even more and more that You will continue to work in our lives and everything. And the covenant promise we know is through Christ all the way to the ultimate. We look to Him. And uh, help us look at the cross. Help us look at Christ. One day we'll see Him as He is and be just like Him. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.